Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter three, will and won't. Harry Potter was snoring loudly. He'd been sitting in a chair beside his bedroom window for the best part of four hours, staring out at the darkening street and finally had fallen asleep with one side of his face pressed against I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hey, Casper, do you know what city in America apparently has the best pizza? Not Chicago. I actually agree with you. I prefer New York style. Sorry, <laughs> Chicago. We love you, the city, just not your pizza. But no, apparently, according to all of these interesting food ratings, New Haven, Connecticut has the best pizza scene of any city in America. Well, do you know what else is in New Haven? What? Our amazing Rita's group run by Hannah. You should join her if you live in the New Haven area, somewhere in Connecticut, which is drivable. And you can find them at harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups to find out when and where they meet. So as many of our listeners know, I used to be really involved in activism around climate change. And climate is one of these issues that in America has become an extremely polarizing issue, or at least it had been. And our theme this week is skepticism. And because of my history with climate, this word just boils my blood. Because at the end of the 19th century, we started to see that there was a relationship between human action and impact on the climate. And by the 1950s, and certainly by the 1970s, it was really clear among scientists there was consensus that human action was causing climate change in the way that we released emissions. But oil companies and coal companies and all sorts of other businesses that might be at risk if there were changes in how we lived our lives 
were very worried about what climate action would mean. Would there be new laws that became difficult for them to abide by, etc.? And so they did this remarkably clever and unfortunate thing, which was they didn't try to head-on discount climate science so much, but they tried to sow doubt. They tried to create skepticism. So, for example, they would really push every time there was a scientist in the media, they would push for a PR story or to have an alternative person up on the news channel at the same time saying, well, we don't quite know for sure. We need more time. We need more research. We need to see if this is part of a natural cycle. And so they seemed reasonable in asking for more research when, in fact, we already knew. And this was all part of their strategy to create skepticism and to delay action because action would have been costly to them. And so this has always stayed me that skepticism can be a weapon, that it's not about actually proving that someone is wrong. But if you can sow enough doubt, if you can create enough suspicion that there's not a full case to be made, you can completely unravel things. And because of that strategy, even though now we're at a place where public consensus is behind action on climate change, we have lost decades of time in which we could have done valuable shifts in in how we live our lives and how our energy is produced because of that skepticism. You have just blown my mind because I have been so raised that skepticism is a virtue, right? It's like go into anything with a skeptical point of view. And so I'm really interested because I think skepticism can play such an important role in our society where we're questioning the powers that be. But yeah, I'm really excited about the reframe that you just gave us and to talk more about that. Well, and I think that's so crucial, Vanessa, because the whole scientific endeavor is based on skepticism. Right. And so that's what was so frustrating about this is we had all the science and the scientists themselves were the most skeptical. And so once they'd gotten to a place where they were convinced, it was like, hello, Mr. Historian or Economist. Like, frankly, I don't care what you think about chemistry. So I, I really resonate with what you're saying, that it's so vital. But I think once that skepticism test has been passed, certainly in a professional context, that's when we've got to role with with what we learn. And so that'll be interesting to see in this chapter where that shows up. I know one thing that you're not skeptical about is my ability to do a 30-second recap. You've got a strong track record and all the data suggests that you're ready to roll. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So we get to see all of the headlines of what's going on in the world. And then um, we find out that Harry is waiting for Dumbledore to arrive. And then, huh, he arrives. And Harry runs downstairs and he's like, didn't think that Harry, that Dumbledore was actually going to arrive, but then he does. And then he has this like interesting confrontation with the Dursleys. And then there's conversation about Sirius's will and whether Creature um, is going to belong to Harry. And Dumbledore does this as sort of a presentation in front of the Dursleys for some reason that I find confusing. And then at the very end, um, Harry packs up and Dumbledore is like, let us go on an adventure. Amazing. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry is like an early 90s, like big hair diva music video situation. There's like sweet rappers all around him and he's pining in the window and his face has fallen asleep on it and it's stuck to the window. And he's like, it's all coming back, it's all coming back to me now. And there is Dumbledore and he is back. And oh my God, it's great. And Dumbledore has brought mead from Rosmata and everyone is enjoying it except not the Dursleys. And then they go on an adventure. I have five seconds left. There's nothing else to say. There is nothing else. (laughs) That was everything. That's one of my all-time favorite songs. I don't know. It was just such a movie moment, right? You can see the camera angle pining in closely to Harry. It's great. It is so pathetic the way he's fallen asleep with his head faced against the window. And he's refused to do any packing because he's like, I'm not going to risk my heart again. (laughs) 
let's talk about that, right? Because it was such a meta moment to me. Joan Didion popularized the term that I think is a, probably a psychiatric term of magical thinking, mm. right? Especially around grief, that you start thinking, if I don't turn down this street, then I won't think of my ex-husband. Oh, that's and right. therefore, all these feelings won't be triggered in me. And Harry is obviously someone who lives in the magical world. But then on top of that, we see this very muggle or all humans, muggle and magical humans, type of magical thinking, which is if I pack, I'm tempting fate too much and he won't come. It's skepticism, right? And it's I don't think that it is skepticism in Dumbledore. I think he trusts that Dumbledore is someone who tries to keep his word. I think it is skepticism that things work out for him. I think he's just been so heartbroken by Sirius's death. And it's just the world again and again betrays him. And I'm curious what you think. I don't think it's like, sure, Dumbledore is going to calm himself. Dumbledore tends to be a man of his word. And if he says he'll come, he'll come. I wonder if Harry's just like, something will happen. Like, he could die between now and then. That's so helpful because I was confused. You know, obviously we've had the whole of book five where their relationship has been really cut off by Dumbledore. And although Dumbledore explained it at the end of the book, like, I can imagine him still being a little confused or at least, you know, that was a super traumatic moment to be like, oh, by the way, here's the explanation for the whole situation. So... I really appreciate you saying it's actually not about a lack of trust in Dumbledore, but it's really just this feeling of like, yeah, things don't work out for me. And it's just the risk is so low if he packs. It's not like he's busy doing other things. And so this is really him trying to manage his own expectations. Right? Yeah, I mean, in fact, he could do with packing just to like clear up the mess. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we know this place is a mess. You probably trash some of these old newspapers that you're not taking seriously anyway. And it just so resonated with me as a way of managing excitement. And yes. And almost like not even being skeptical in the world, but being skeptical that you deserve such a good thing. Why do you think he feels like he doesn't deserve it? Like a whole summer with the Weasleys instead of the Dursleys and alone time with Dumbledore, who all he wanted last year was like a moment of eye contact with Dumbledore. An adult coming to like pick him up and shepherd him from one place to another. An adult who he admires asking him a favor. This is messing with his entire conception of reality. Dumbledore is like, I'm going to need your help on something, which I feel like when someone you respect asks a favor of you. (gasps) I feel so good. Right. You're like, you need me. And I think there is something here. I mean, I think it's so locked into his experience with Sirius because I think Harry has fallen back into a narrative of everyone I love gets hurt. And especially when that moment becomes about the house that um, Harry has been left, right? Dumbledore says, Sirius left you everything. We don't know if that includes Creature, as you were saying. Um, but it also means that he inherits 12 Grimoire Place. And so I just feel like Harry is still so much caught up in that grief and in that, in the shame that he brought Sirius there, that he's responsible for his death. I can totally connect with that feeling where you're like, oh, I don't even, I don't even deserve to leave, you know? Yeah. I mean, it just seems almost pathological to me, the extent to which he didn't take this letter seriously. He obviously sent back an owl saying, yes, that's fine. But he didn't tell the Dursleys that a wizard was going to show up at their front door like late one night. He just like didn't even do any logistical interference. He was in such deep 
skepticism about something good happening to him, he handles the situation completely like a novice. He knows how to work the Dursleys we see in this chapter. He knows which stair to stay on so that he's out of swinging distance. He knows every inch of this house. He knows that Petunia is in her nightdress and wearing those gloves because she is doing her nightly wipe up of the counters. He has this place on lock. He could have thought through, okay, the best way to warn them about Dumbledore is, but he was in such denial about this gift possibly actually appearing that he loses all strategy. It just makes me think about the ways that we all do this, that we play these games with ourselves of like, well, Three good things have happened, so I shouldn't expect four. And part of me thinks we should be expecting good things, not in a, like, the secret way where if I expect them, they will come. But it's if I expect them, then I'll be ready when Dumbledore arrives and I'll be packed and we can get out of the house faster. I think that it's important to build the infrastructure for good things to happen to us. But I just so empathize with this feeling of, like, I don't want to jinx it. Right? That's the feeling. Yeah, and that it's not real until it happens. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Okay, so a moment of skepticism that I am going to defend. The Dursleys. Yes. They do not accept a strange drink from a strange man who's arrived at their house at 11 o'clock at night. Who's created it out of thin air. Yeah. Now... I completely agree with Dumbledore that they have been rude to him this whole time. And in fact, it's one of my favorite burns of the entire series when Vernon is like, I don't want to be rude. But and he's like, well, sometimes we can't help ourselves. So don't try. <laughs> That's like, right. Stop talking. Love it. But I just think it is so reasonable to be like, no, thank you. 
world that turned my son into a pig a few years ago. We're not going to drink those drinks that we didn't see you make in front of us. This is just like what you get taught as a woman going to bars. If you walk away from your glass and come back to it, don't drink it. You don't know what people have put in there. I just, this seems to me like a healthy level of skepticism. And like Dumbledore is just doing this to have fun. I think he's like pretending to be hospitable, but he's obviously pranking the Dursleys. Oh, there's a lot of pranking going on. I mean, the sofa that like zooms backwards and forwards to like knock them down so they're sitting down. There's a lot that he's having fun with, I think. And I think this is not just for his own enjoyment. It's to rebuild a connection with Harry because I think Harry is right to have probably some skepticism towards Dumbledore as well about like, what's your plan for me? Like all of this stuff that you didn't tell me and now what's going on? So I think this is a way for Dumbledore to rebuild a bridge of like, oh, aren't the Dursleys ridiculous? And like, let's kind of laugh at their expense, which is a, a smart tool. Yeah. So on that, I, I, I'm going to need your help making this about skepticism. But so the only piece of business that Dumbledore actually has with the Dursleys is, is this hairy aging business, right? That's right. It could be a one minute conversation where it's like, look, I'm going to need you to take Harry in one more time. Um, before he's 17, there's a year left. This is what I need from you. And I would understand why he would want verbal confirmation on that. But the rest of this in front of the Dursleys seems to me to be a performance. And I think it is a performance in part for Harry and in part for the Dursleys. And I think a lot of the performance for Harry makes complete sense, right? He's like, I am going to say in front of you that they were abusive to you. Yeah. Like, I am going to validate yes. that they I asked something different from them than what they gave you. Yes. I mean, he goes on a spiel. He says, you know, you did not welcome him in as your son. You did not do this. You did not do that. In fact, you hurt him. And this is the first time that someone is really telling them, like, you did this thing and it was wrong. And Harry is having people witness him in front of them saying that it was wrong. That is a massively... I think a healing experience for Harry, obviously not not all the way, but a big step forward for him to be like, yeah, my my experience was real. Yeah. And I, I think that part of me thinks it's a slightly cynical move on Dumbledore's part to build Harry's trust that he wants to say in front of Petunia and in front of Harry, Petunia, what I asked you to do was raise him as if he was your own son, Yeah, which lets... Dumbledore a little bit off of the hook in front of Harry of like, mm. I didn't just leave you on these mean people's doorsteps. I asked them to raise you as a son and they failed. Mm. So I think he's a little bit throwing Petunia under the bus. She deserves to be thrown under the bus. That makes sense to me why he does it in this triangulated setting. Yeah. But what doesn't make sense to me is why he does the creature thing in front of the Dursleys. Yeah, this is such an interesting moment because, first of all, the, just the magic still seems a little unclear to me. Like, oh, look, here's the will from Sirius and everything that he owned was left for you. But who knows how the magic really works? Now it's the end of the line. Like, does it really go to you, Harry? Or does it go to Bellatrix, who's the last you know family member alive? And so he orchestrates this kind of test where he forces creature to appear and then asks Harry to give some sort of command. Yeah. And so he summons creature. Right. So I think that this shows a healthy skepticism on Dumbledore's uh -huh. part of like the tricky ways that I think many of us know wills can go and the tricky ways that Death Eaters might be trying to take advantage of creature and of, you know, they now know that creature is a potential willing asset. And I think, again, this is Dumbledore's skepticism of the Ministry of Magic. Like, is this something that is magical law that can be done well? Or is this something that they're going to try to come after us for? So I think that this is a healthy level of skepticism that 
makes Dumbledore pull Creature and do a test. But it is such a humiliating and horrible thing to do for Creature. And it is a heartbreaking thing. And I understand why he needs to do it tactically, but I don't understand why he has to do it in front of the Dursleys. I mean, one argument would be Dumbledore just wants to emphasize to the Dursleys, A, look how powerful I am. Like, I can just summon other magical creatures. And so to kind of, you know, force them to to, to just reckon with the otherness of the wizarding world and therefore the respect they should give. Yeah, I I guess I'm just like trying to reckon with the fact that I find this moment so troubling because I think for so much of this chapter, there's just like such a Dumbledore doing wish fulfillment Santa Claus moment, right? He's like, I'm going to come. I'm going to rescue you early. I'm going to take you to your favorite place in the entire world. I'm going to give you alone time with me. I'm going to confront your abusers. I'm then going to like a little bit humiliate and torture them in fun ways in front of you. And you're going to get a watch it. Like he is just like doing (laughs) right. Like this is like a revenge fantasy in the best way. (laughs) And like this is just so delightful. But then there's just this really difficult moment where, and I think he, in part, you know, like, this is news he has to give to Harry. And I even think he wants the Dursleys to know that Harry is rich and doesn't need them. And he wants the Dursleys to know that if they were nicer, maybe they would have some of the money. Like, I get all of it. And I think it's all beautiful and beautifully orchestrated. And then this big, horrible thing to me of summoning Creature and having Creature go through something really difficult for for Creature, gets done with an audience. And I know that Creature doesn't care that the Dursleys are there. It just seems like this, like, wish-fulfilling scene of, like, Harry, I'm going to give you everything you ever wanted, has this slave house elf in the middle of it. Well, what if we what if we think about the audience being Harry rather than the Dursleys? Because I do think that's an unpleasant moment for Harry because he has to, again, confront Sirius's loss I mean, literally, he looked into Creature's eyes and Creature lied to him. Like, if I was Harry, I would put a lot of blame as well as on myself on on Creature. So what if we thought that this was a way of Dumbledore saying to Harry, look, here are all the things I can do, right? Like, here are all the ways that I can make your life better and you can trust me and we're going to have a great time together this year. But remember to be skeptical even of my powers, perhaps, because one of the things that struck me so much in this whole scene is that Dumbledore is not able to ascertain who Creature is loyal to. Like, he needs Harry to do that. Dumbledore isn't able to fully understand what the implications are of this will on Grimmauld Place. And so there's something about Dumbledore also revealing his lack of power in this moment, which is going to be such an important theme throughout these books. So I'm, I'm wondering if even amidst this kind of, as you said, like, wish fulfillment chapter, there's actually a really important and disturbing moment of skepticism that he's teaching Harry. Thank you, because I feel like I was like, I have feelings. And you were like, let's turn them together into thoughts. (laughs) I have feelings, too. Well, tell me something that this chapter gives you feelings about. I have feelings about the pamphlet. Um, This is the pamphlet that the ministry is circulating about how people can protect themselves and, you know, make sure that you have a password with your family. Like, don't go out alone at night, all of that kind of standard advice. I do think something like this is necessary, right? We need everyone to shift cultural norms because we're in a war. But on the other hand, it's a really intense way of making people skeptical of each other. We know that through the imperious curse, people can be controlled from a distance to act not on their own doing. And so this does become really important. But talking about 
how to sow a climate of fear, right? Like think about those big energy companies and, you know, other climate deniers. Like that's what they were doing was creating a culture of skepticism and fear, which makes it hard to trust people. Oh, and it's so interesting to me because part of me is just like the lovey-dovey, like, we should be loving each other, not being afraid of each other. <laughs> but literally, I think getting to know each other better right now would be a better strategy. Because how are you going to tell if your neighbor's under the imperious curse if you don't know what they're usually like? Oh, yeah. So I feel like a strategy would be get to know your 10 neighbors. I love that. Right? Like, because then when the when ICE shows up, you can be like, no, I know them and you're going to care because you've talked to them every day about their garden for 10 years and you're more likely to intervene, right? There is actually a tactical reason as to why governments don't want you talking to your neighbors and why it is so important for us to be humanizing each other radically every day through small practices. It reminds me of the East German Stasi, which at some point, I think like 2% of the East German population was somehow a Stasi contributor or employee, which is just kind of mass surveillance, like before all the cameras. And I love what you're saying, that actually strong networks of relationship are in some ways our best protection, not only to look out for, you know, someone acting strangely, but to be like, hey, let's talk about what these issues are. Like, why are you kind of into Death Eaters? And how do we stop you from feeling that by remembering that you're a good person underneath? And so, yeah, it would have been really interesting to see if there'd been proactively relational advice in this pamphlet as much as like hide and, you know, protect yourself advice. Host a tea party. I love that. Everybody share passwords with each other and like create some basic infrastructure. But like, actually, the best strategy to keep Death Eaters away is to remind one another that you love each other. This is bad strategy, Ministry of Magic. Vanessa, the last point I think that's worth looking at where we saw skepticism kind of show up is in an unlikely moment, Dumbledore is kind of berating the Dursleys about the ways that they have mistreated Harry. And he's powerfully speaking about it. And then at the very end, he says, the best that can be said is that he has at least escaped the appalling damage you have inflicted upon the unfortunate boy sitting between you. And both Petunia and Vernon kind of look you know, at the boy sitting between them and is like, but that's our son. I mean, literally one of them says something like, us mistreat daughters and they cannot see the ways in which they've hurt him. I mean, and there's obviously some physical element and health element to that, perhaps. But I think more it's about the way that they have turned him into a bully and the way that they've taken his sweet generosity, which we will see, thank God, in the next book. But that's been squashed. And what's left is this is this bully. Yeah. And like spoiled, obsessed with stuff. Right. right. Just like all of the things that they raised him to be. And Dumbledore does it with this great finesse, right? He doesn't say what you've done is actually abused Dudley worse than Harry. He does it with this great, like, at least it hasn't had the same impact on Harry. It's a compliment to Harry, right? Like, even though they were so terrible to you, Harry, you have turned out so well. In fact, you've somehow managed to turn out better than this kid that they think that they have done only right by I think what I take away from this moment is that sometimes when we're skeptical, it's hard for us to see our own mistakes. I really do think their reaction to Dumbledore's accusations are like 
confusion. Like, what? Like, no, we love our son. We would never hurt him. And they just can't see the ways in which they have. And I think I I certainly am guilty of that, you know, where I'm like, oh, I'm a good person. Like, I wouldn't do something bad. And yet when I learn more about how power works or how race works, like that actually, yes, I have done a lot of things and still do that end up causing harm. And so maybe one of the things I want to take away from this conversation is when I'm feeling skeptical, is that a moment to be like, oh, hang on, I'm probably not understanding something that other people do. And now is a moment for me to learn. I think that's what I want to take away from this Dursley moment. I mean, they're even more than skeptical, right? Like they literally are looking to see if Dumbledore has somehow magically manifested somebody between them besides Dudley. Right. Right. Like they are incredulous. And I am just like so Jewish that you like you're not going to get me off my skepticism habit. And again, I think that this is the product of being a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, right? Like you don't stand in line. Someone tells you to stand in line, you run out of line. Like there is just this skepticism of authority that I was raised with. It is like so important to me. So I guess maybe it's about questioning our own first instincts. Mm. When my first instinct is to be skeptical, maybe it's to be skeptical of that skepticism. And then when somebody says stand in line and I feel the urge to stand in line, be like, no, I'm supposed to run away from this line. Right. But to question our first instincts. And I think that Vernon and Petunia's first instinct is to be completely skeptical of Dumbledore in this moment. And I think when you are skeptical as a knee-jerk reaction, that's probably about defensiveness or privilege or about any number of other things. But I don't want to just, like, throw the baby out with the bathwater on this because I just think in a world in which it feels like we're living in this Orwellian moment— I definitely don't want to be walking away being like, well, skepticism is not the way to go. This resonates so much for me, Vanessa. I was having dinner at a friend of a friend's house yesterday and I said, oh, I'm vegetarian. And the first question, as often is, it's like, oh, when did you become vegetarian? I was like, oh, when I was 19. And then the next thing that they said was, oh, but you still drive a car. And I was like, oh, this is not about your curiosity. It's not about your skepticism, as we should all be skeptical, right? This is just about defensiveness because you're receiving my choice as an attack on you. Yeah. That really helps me understand what you just laid out of like what's underneath that reaction. You know, like to just look below the surface and say, is this actually a a real moment to be choiceful and be like, no, it's important that I ask questions because we're setting up a system that could lead to real damage. Or is it like, actually, I feel vulnerable and embarrassed and angry. And so I'm just going to throw it right back at you, which is what, you know, the coal and the oil companies were doing. And I really, I really appreciate that because I think that's what I want to differentiate when we think about skepticism. Yeah, that's so helpful. Vanessa, we're continuing with our practice of marginalia, which is to look in the margins of the text and see what both of us have written or scribbled or drawn, and to essentially like step into that river of conversation between the reader and the text. So you have my copy of the book, and I wonder, is there anything that you can see among the things that I've scribbled that strikes you this time? Yes. So you put warrior question mark about scrimjaw because of lion-like and or. So I want you to help me understand because I am very, very anti-war. But there is something so romantic to me about the word warrior. 
And I, I like want your help understanding why. And I think what it is, is that warrior is a word that we only use after someone is back from war. Mm. We're not like those are warriors out there. It's like those are troops. Those are soldiers. And when they come back, warrior is almost like an informal anointing that we do of like the brave soldiers. And it's funny because Scrimjar is someone who I also think in that same way, if I had been part of this re-election process, I would have been like out with the court jester. I want someone who's going to like keep my cubs safe. But like, why is it that if you were to say to me soldier, I'd be like, Bleh. but you say warrior. And I'm like, yes. It's so interesting. I mean, just as you're talking, I'm seeing the word war in the word warrior. Yeah. Like, it's literally in there. But you're right. The way that we use it, I think, first of all, is broader than just in a military context. Right. Like I think of teachers as warriors on the front line. Right. Like it's this like very positive feeling for me. Well, I think it because it taps into this sense of like you want to protect what you love. And I think that's something, you know, parents as kind of archetypal warriors, you know, protecting their children. That's something that all of us at least can recognize if, if even if we don't have experience of it ourselves. So I get why that word is interesting and evocative in that way that's powerful. And absolutely, in an election, and we don't, I still am not really clear about how Fudge has been replaced, but nonetheless, they've chosen Scrimjaw. And there's something about him which I think helps us feel safe. And this takes us back to the pamphlet, which is, Actually, it doesn't matter what's on the pamphlet. It's the fact that there is a pamphlet. And in fact, the first thing being like, do not leave the house on your own in the dark. All of this is helping people feel safe, even if they're not being kept safe. That first thing is so obvious. Like, everybody knows that. But putting it in written form makes me feel like, yes, okay, I know how to stay safe. And so there's this element of like, yes, in this absolutely catastrophic moment, there's a way to feel protected and I think having someone like Rufus Scrimjaw come in as the new minister just gives that kind of evocation of safety and that everything will be okay in the end. I think that's that's what a warrior evokes is that is that what will be okay ultimately. Vanessa, the thing that struck me about what you have underlined is um, when Dumbledore is talking to Vernon and he says, but the evidence so far suggests that that would be optimistic to the point of foolishness, which is just such a great line. I know. First of all. But what's interesting to me is really this word foolishness, um, because Dumbledore is such a an interesting character, right? He has all of this power and seriousness and authority, but we constantly see him being playful. There's all of this, you know, funny conversation that he has with the portraits in his office. There's his clothing, his speeches at the beginning of the year. And so the fact that he has this word foolishness to me not only illustrates that he's saying it would be unwise to expect anything nice from Vernon, but also that he has that word in his mind, like that he's thinking of silliness and foolishness. And I I can imagine, frankly, that's what keeps him going. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. He's so playful. Right. And as much as I think he's like banging the glasses on the heads of the Dursleys for Harry, I think he's also doing it for his own amusement. I think so, too. He's a man who's learned how to take micro breaks (laughs) because I think he probably works 18-hour days and like doesn't take a lot of like long baths by himself to like regroup. And so I think that he has instituted peeves and lemon drops. And I I was actually thinking of him and his candy as I I was stress working last night. And 
was thinking about Dumbledore and how he was also probably burning the midnight oil in his endeavors. And I was like, the difference between me and Dumbledore is that I will work until I am like so depleted that I need to eat a whole pie in order to like motivate myself. Whereas Dumbledore seems like an Obama figure who's like, I will eat one lemon drop at a time. I just like didn't see him as chugging lemon drops, but as like somebody who has strategically like seven almonds. Yeah. He has set out seven lemon drops for himself and has this like silly little thing that he loves and he's built it into his life in these just like beautiful ways. And I don't think like if we all institute more silliness, then we can be more productive for capitalism. But like, I just think that there's something so beautiful about having funny passwords, right? Or like just instituting silliness into our lives in these small ways, making jokes that only you get, like do what you got to do to amuse yourself. This is so interesting because I've always thought of Hermione as the archetypal inheritor of Dumbledore, you know, the most capable witch or wizard, someone who has the most skill with with magic. And what you're saying is making me think, first of all, of the twins as a very important kind of inheritor of Dumbledore's silliness, but also Ron. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And He I'm, loves candy. Yeah. And, and it's just playful, right? He loves Quidditch. Like there's a competitive element, sure, but it's also like the joy of games. The first time we meet Ron is playing with the cards on the train. Yeah. And then, of course, Harry is an archetypal carrier of his mission in the world of doing good. And so I, I'm suddenly seeing this trio as a worthy inheritor, each in their own way, of Dumbledore's legacy. And I, I just never seen that. So I appreciate your your insight. I mean, I just underlined that sentence. I wasn't quite sure why. It's I just think that there is something. Yeah, right. Like he always has a sparkle in his eye. Yeah. And I think by him walking through the world that way, you know when something is really serious because the sparkle has gone out of his eye. Right. It's not like he's silly at inappropriate moments. That's right. He's very he's very wise about when to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, all of this just helps me appreciate marginalia as a practice as well, that even underlining something can be like, oh, here is a door. Like, I haven't opened it. I haven't unlocked it yet. But I see a door or a window or a passageway that I want to explore. So I really appreciate that. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, Kaspar. Hello, Vanessa. Hello, Ariana. This is Nikki. I'm from Germany. And I just wanted to share a little story and a blessing regarding your episode on concealment. When I was 21, I was diagnosed with skin cancer. I was very lucky that I didn't have to get any kind of chemotherapy treatment, but I did have to undergo two surgeries. And before the second one, something really irritating happened. Many of the healthcare professionals that were treating me kept exclaiming, oh, it's such a shame to put a large scar on such a young woman. And as a raging feminist, this made me very, very angry because it was perpetuating the notion that the female body is still very much a thing that is to be perfect, that is to be untarnished. And I now have a large scar on my thigh. I do not conceal it and I do not want to conceal it. I think it is a reminder that I choose my health over my physical appearance, that I do what's right, even though the optics might not be, you know, what beauty standards dictate. And I just wanted to offer a blessing for anyone who does not conceal their scars, be that physical or mental scars, and just a little reminder to take a good look at your body every few weeks. Notice the changes. Don't be upset about them. But if you see something that might be unusual, go get checked out. The sooner you do, the better the outcome. And please wear sunscreen. I know it's a thing with the coral reefs and everything, but do take care of your body. Thank you. Nikki, thank you so much for that beautiful voicemail. And I love the, I love a lot of things about your message, but one of them is just the, the important distinction you're making that like, just honor your body the way that it is, but also take care of it and put on sunscreen. Like, please do not tell me that a scar is a reason to feel a certain way about my body, but also wear sunscreen. Yes. Thank you so much, Nikki. Vanessa, sadly, not a lot of women options in this chapter yet again. But who are you blessing this week? I am blessing Mrs. Longbottom. Um, she's given a chance to speak to the newspaper about her grandson, Neville. And rather than being like, my grandson, Neville, goes to Hogwarts and I'm so proud of him or like anything positive about Neville, she's like, and he's friends with that famous kid, Harry Potter, who I sort of wish was my grandson. 
I just want to bless her, like in a bless her heart way. Like she still does not get it. Like she does not understand A, unconditional love and B, how great of a grandson she has. Like, I guess I just think that unconditional love isn't just a practice of loving someone unconditionally, but it is like you said about marginalia. It is a door to actually seeing how wonderful someone already is. And if she just loved Neville for who he was, she would be seeing how he is coming into his own. And she's just missing it, even though it's happening right in front of her. So I want to offer a blessing to all of us who love imperfectly and to Mrs. Longbottom, who is the poster child for that right now. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? I want to bless Harry. I just, oh my gosh, so many hours of my young teenage life were spent waiting for a ride to the bus stop or at the bus stop for the (laughs) school bus or for the bus to come back. And then for my mom, who was, I'm afraid to say, always the missing link. (laughs) Although I love her very much. We love you. We love you very, very much. And I'm so grateful that you came and collected me each of those days. But you were really often very late. (laughs) And (laughs) just that feeling of like we've talked about helplessness recently. But I, I just feel for Harry because you're like, Frick if I know if this is going to happen. It took, you know, 45 minutes for someone to show last week. So I'm not going to stand here looking at every car. I'm just going to eat a lot of chocolate behind the shed. (laughs) (laughs) That is, you took word for word what I would bless Harry for out of my mouth. (laughs) Uncanny. I just get it. I'm with you. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. Or please come and join our new and improved Patreon. We've got over 1,200 people supporting us on there, and it's what helps make the show work. See you in Mayork at Casper. Yeah. You can leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you very soon at one of our live shows. We're in New York City on September 9th, Cambridge Mass on October 2nd, Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois on November 21st, and St. Louis, Missouri on December 19th. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 4, Horace Slughorn, through the theme of joy. This episode of Harry Potter and Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Erson. Our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. We'd like to thank Nikki for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. We will talk to you next week. But that has just been obliviated by the way that they've raised him. Obliterated. I was like, you just used a magical word and not a real word. That's so embarrassing. Am I doing that out in the world? I'm like, <laughs> saying like, oh. I just can't wait until one day someone walks by you and you go muggle. Muggle. <laughs>